Hello, my name is Daniel Lepschkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. As a humanist, my faith lies in humanity, not in the supernatural. And if you believe that spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. On this week's episode, I speak with Reverend Christian Watkins about coexistence, how to do it, and the difficulties of doing it. Christian and I have been friends for about seven years, and in that time we've had plenty to disagree about, faith among other things, but even in heated disagreement, we've maintained and strengthened our friendship. Christian has a lot of experience dealing with different religious perspectives, sometimes seemingly incompatible ones. Pluralism in general can be a strenuous and difficult thing. I talk with Christian about what's required for pluralism to be possible, as well as where it breaks down and no longer becomes possible. And now, my conversation with Christian Watkins about coexistence. Christian Watkins, welcome to Reenchantment. Thanks so much, Daniel. Or rather, welcome back to Reenchantment because we tried to do this episode a couple weeks ago and technical problems just scuttled the whole thing. It's exciting to be back. It's always good to see your face and to hear your voice. All right, so let's let's give people a little bit of an introduction um, to who you are and how we met. Do you want to do the the met part, or do you want me to do the met part? <laughs> well, okay, so I'll, I'll we we met back when we were at Yale, and it was what was it? You it was a sociology class. I was thinking, considering doing sociology, yes. and you we, you you happened to be in a sociology class that I was I was auditing. And and then we we really really met when we were dancing. We started dancing swing and blues, and that was kind of like the the our relationship was forged in on the dance floor. For those of you who do not know or have not danced with Daniel, he's an excellent dancer, and it was a lot oh. of fun to dance with you. And I thought he's got to be a good human if he's this good at dancing. Oh, uh, you know what? That's actually not true. I mean, not about me not being a good human. I'm a great human. No, but uh, it, it, good dancers, not always good humans. You you That's, come to find. I, I understand that. I guess for me, I evaluate maybe on different criteria. But I, I sensed <laughs> in our interaction through the dancing and also communicating with you that you would be a good a, a person that I would see as a kindred spirit. And, and so we... Over the years, I oh, I completely forgot about this. I moved into the house that you used to live yeah. at in yeah. New Haven. I yeah, yeah, we, it became a blues house. It became a dance house. We mm-hmm. danced a lot there, and then we we traveled a lot to 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 at least a few dance exchanges, right? Yeah, I think we were in we were in New York at least once, and I don't remember Boston another time, mm-hmm. and those are the two that I'm thinking of. But there might be yeah. another one. Well, we also, I mean, we've, we've done a lot of traveling together because we went and we lived in Turkey together. We did. We lived in Istanbul, right. For two months. Dope. It and was. You and you found the apartment. That was what I was so thankful for because I was so nervous about looking for an apartment and you found it. Oh my God. We, we found the best apartment. It's true. Two, it was two gay Turkish men that were living together. We looked out the window. There were like umbrellas hanging it's in beautiful. the streets. It was a really epic place. It was, it was. And meanwhile, the their country was in turmoil, and I guess 
kind of still is. Erdogan for was just had his referendum and basically became a, a de facto autocrat, as I understand it. Uh, so very tense times. It and, was very tense. Yeah, and I remember I was I was I was writing. I was a journalist at that time. Yeah. You were a Christian secret agent. I was, um, and that's actually were, my that's actually my formal title. You you were doing you were doing. We can't talk about it much. I actually still don't know exactly what you were doing. I worked with, I worked with refugees. I worked in medical refugee services. That's what I was involved. Right, in. right, right, right. Yeah, and I I remember I I wrote an article about doctors, refugee, refugee Syrian doctors treating refugees in Turkey. Yep. Yeah. It was All a right. good time. It was. It was. Okay, so long-winded explanation about who you are, who we, we have are. A long his- we have a long history. We do. We do. It's, uh, we've got a fun history. It's true. All right. But yeah, so right now, and the thing that I want to talk with you about on this podcast is coexistence, and particularly... We'll start with coexistence in the religious sense, in the religious sphere, but then, well, then we can we can branch out because the election is coming up, and there's there's all sorts of questions. Got to talk about it. <laughs> how how and if we can coexist in the the weeks and months to come? But where where are you right now in terms of what are you doing? So my name is Christian, and that is pretty fortuitous because I am a minister. I'm actually an ordained minister. In I think currently in three or four denominations, it depends on who's and, and actually maybe six. It depends on the day, or who's counting. But my uh, formal title I'm a reverend and I serve as the director and campus minister in uh, Manhattan, Kansas, the Little Apple, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Kansas State University. And my role is to facilitate and work in a in an organization that was started called Ecumenical Christian Ecumenical Campus Ministries. That's a funny slip because that was an old name from like 10 years ago. Ecumenical Campus Ministries and ecumenical in the in the sense of the history of Christianity has meant to collaborate across lines of difference in the tradition mm-hmm. across denominations. But what, what we do at ECM in Manhattan is we actually are working on an interfaith, interbelief, and a spirituality concept, which also includes those who do, do not identify as religious or who are trying to, who are really engaged in asking questions and exploring their their own identity as it relates to their faith and spiritual selves, and sometimes arrive at just wanting to be be in that place of thinking and uh, meaning making, and that's a really wonderful, wonderful thing. So we support this very, perhaps eclectic, I think of it as very rich community of folks who are very intent on asking what it means to function and live together amidst difference, but also how to support one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is a this is a question that kind of goes way back. I mean, for as long as there has been uh, religion, there has been infighting between religions and and within religions. Sure. And as for as long as there have been human cultures and societies, there has been similar dynamics. It seems like that is that is an oh so human characteristic, and I guess with with religious religious coexistence, it's it strikes me as as particularly difficult whether you're religious or non-religious existing in 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 a country in a space with uh, these different perspectives is difficult because they are essentially different metaphysical perspectives. You can you can agree on how your your morals your your how you ought to live for the most part but also at the, at the very same time be have completely different views on on what is going on out there beyond the curtain 
with your work, is does that come up more often, like the theological, metaphysical part, or is it is it more of a down to earth, like this is how you should live your life, like, this is right, this is wrong? What what tends to come up more? I think that's a great, an interesting framework. So I, to and be, it's important to frame that K State is also an, an agricultural school. And so in a lot of ways, I think that people in in those contexts, it's a public agricultural school, really are connected to the earth and the ground. And so this analogy of groundedness and like pragmatics, I feel like is pretty predominant or prominent in the people in people's now, questions. Are there, are there many are there many pagans? I think it would surprise people how religiously diverse, at least college communities are in Kansas. I actually went to school and, and went to undergrad at the at the other state school. There's actually three major state schools in Kansas, which I think is cool. But I went to KU, so I'm at K-State and I attend to KU. And there was a lot of conversation around religiosity and spirituality there. And I think there is also at K-State. It tends to be because Kansas, I think, has been perceived as being a place of having more conservative, theological, evangelical, fundamentalist ideas, that there's also a lot of folks that are attracted to conversations around challenging those norms. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think it would surprise people how many folks identify as pagan, how many folks identify and are like actively involved in questioning those social norms and those religious norms because it's so much a part of the political spectrum in in this area. So in that sense, like I think there's a lot of pragmatic ways of engaging with one another, and so that's important, but that doesn't mean they're not theological in nature. And so a lot of the times, like what I see myself doing and what I try and think about in the context of, facilitating community is that we're really trying to create a space for imagination for people to have like robust imaginations around what it means to to be in a space together and also like that it's okay to be curious that it's okay to not come in with an orthodoxy or an orthopraxy and and if you have like let's ask questions about how does that provide meaning to your life how do these other ideas provide meaning in other folks' lives and and what does that look like and why does that matter? So mm -hmm. that's, I would say that's a really robust part of what's happening and I in a, in a meaningful, intentional, like very sincere way. Mm -hmm. I guess on the topic of coexistence, I, I recently thought, I recently heard uh, a quote attributed to Rumi that the lamps may be different, but the light is the same. I love that. And you know, it, it's at least among at least among certain traditions, the Abrahamic traditions, for example, it's it's really a single through line. It's a single God that, while you have different, there are different names and different interpretations of that divinity. There there is a through line there, and you see another kind of region of similar kinds of attitudes towards the metaphysical. Buddhism, Jainism, kind of Hinduism a little bit as well. And I guess it feels it feels to me that as though atheism is kind of the biggest departure from from all that because in a sense there's there's a real questioning of like well is is there a light or are there are there only lamps? Do you are there many atheists on campus and what what, what is their perspective and what is how do they contribute to the conversation? I feel like it's important for me to locate th that I am not I I am not in the like active in an atheist community in terms of like those conversations 
on campus, and so I don't want to try and speak for everyone. My my experience is based on the things that I've seen at ECM and the conversations we've been engaged with, so that I want to make sure that I name that. But my I think that a lot of the communities that I've spent time with or seen or folks that identify as atheists that are involved at ECM often are in spaces of really intentionally engaging the histories that they've encountered in as it relates to Christianity. And there's a lot of a lot of deep curiosity about how things came to be. How do these how do these ideas in Christianity exist? Why do they exist? And there's a sense of like wanting to be present in conversations and, and deep engagements about different types of meaning. And so I feel like those are the types of experiences that I've seen the most and the ones that I'm able to, to speak to just because those are the folks that are active in the community. I'm involved on a committee called the, I'm sorry if I messed this up for anyone that listens to this, the President's Committee on Religious spiritual and non-religious diversity and it is a committee that advises the president made of the university or yes yes that advises the president on yes right the president of the united (laughs) states no no that was last week so no so (laughs) of the university on these questions on campus and we have an active atheist presence on that group and we we just recently had an event where atheists were involved in creating a kind of a talking session where they shared about their ideas and ask other questions of other communities. Like, well, how do you think about this or perceive atheism? And it was actually Zoom bombed by an alt-right group that was very, yeah, that was very engaged in discriminatory language. And I think while it may seem like that makes sense in Kansas, that you can just kind of flippantly point to that being something that happens, don't necessarily experience that to be how everyone functions and that there is this I would say that Trump has animated, and the politics around Trump, the animated ideas that if anyone doesn't form or fall into the kind of white Christian narrative that they're seen as alien and other and, and bad and different. And so there's a lot of, in that way, like, I think also the people that are involved at ECM, the students and community members have some, have shared experiences with atheists in that space where they're not necessarily have the same ideas, but they're also like feeling very nervous and bullied. And that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Those groups who are being very vocal and discriminatory in, in many ways. And so that's not necessarily yeah. the same experience, but certainly something that hap- is happening across the spectrum. Yeah, I was speaking with Nick Fish, the president of American Atheists, and he was saying that he's actively working on building coalitions with other groups, LGBT communities, and also, interestingly enough, other other religious communities, which are, have, have felt the kind of heat or, or pressure discrimination of predominantly evangelical conservative forces. And so he, he's he's also you know very very aware there aren't enough atheists at least not enough openly atheist people to to really really uh, fight a good fight but maybe together in, with a coalition there there might be. And I think I think that's an important point that I mean there are differences and I and I don't want to muddy those or say that they're not important because I I believe for example and I tell people that one of the reasons I went into ordained ministry is because I had a strong group of Muslim women that I met with on a regular basis that like 
we talked about theology and I became mm. super interested in understanding my own history and tradition because those women, these women were so committed to thinking about that with me. And so mm. I think it's, I think that there's a way that we can enrich one another and think about coexistence, not as truth telling to each other, but, but, but kind of creating a space where we can explore who we are and how we create understanding alongside one another. And so I think that's a great moment or space where even if you don't have, again, the same belief systems or structures, there are still coalitions to be built. There's still conversations to be had. And in fact, you can enrich one another's lives like in very intentional ways. And that's, that's amazing. And I think yeah. should be, and so I'm excited to hear that your friend is engaged in that. And I hope others can um, also be a part of thinking around those lines too. Yeah. Well, all of that, is well and good if the people involved are willing to have conversations. Absolutely. And so what we were touching upon last time we, we, we tried to record this podcast <laughs> was, was that there are certain people out there that are not willing to have conversations. They're not really willing to coexist. Can you speak about the alt, alt-right presence uh, on campus and what is that like and, and what is it like to, yeah, I mean, to, to, to be to have a zoom conversation that gets zoom zoom bombed by by one of these groups well again I I was not on that conversation actually the one of the women that serves on our board was one of the moderators and so has a lot more experience about that and was describing sort of a debrief they had because it was very difficult and traumatizing to have to have that happen in the middle of a conversation. And I think if, if anyone has ever done any research in the news on Kansas State, they'll find that over the last four years, although this extends further into the past, that there have been public displays of what we refer to as all right. I would say like outright racist, homophobic, white supremacy, uh, white supremacist moments of trying to use fear to to exclude others and to exert a presence, uh, a presence in the community of Manhattan. And I think as a community, what I have valued about being here is that there is a strong sense of that being wrong by a lot of people, that it's not just that there are people and there are organizations that have collectively been organizing against these ideas for a long time, because this isn't this, these groups have had political vestiges sometimes in Kansas and in the Midwest. And so the history of, of being active and creating organizations is a part of kind of the lifeblood of a lot of Kansas communities. And so there's already been a, a very, like very large, I would say, we don't believe this, we don't agree with this, this is not a part of who we are as a community. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, I think what you were asking about earlier is like, what is the, the baseline for engagement? And if you're not able to acknowledge or recognize that someone has a shared humanity, if if someone else's humanity is a seen as a threat or something that you need to control, that that's probably not going to be a good place to look at things like coexistence because mm-hmm. the negation of of another person that doesn't doesn't yeah. that doesn't create mutuality. Right. In a sense kind of like pluralism runs out there. The 
the the the continent, the island of pluralism, sure. you know, stops where you reach a uh, a community or or a person or a set of people that is unwilling to to acknowledge kind of an equality of of, of mutual dignity and mutual respect among people. If, if it's 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 one thing to disagree about interpretations, philosophies, even morality in in the religious sphere or the cultural sphere, but to to not have at least a common you know understanding that we are all humans trying to make something work, that essentially all conversations would will will break down from the get go, and so in 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 the situation like that. You said it yourself. I mean, like that coexistence can't happen there. What? What is? What are the next steps? Like, what happens from there? Absolutely. Well, I think that we are, we're seeing it on a, a national scale, uh, and we're also experiencing it here. There are these these relationships between organizations where folks are like, "Hey, listen, we clearly need. We clearly have something that we share. We need to create some kind of bridge because our voice is amplified when we do that." And so, I mean, that's, again, what we're seeing here at K-State. We're seeing groups, I think, forming and inner, inner, if you will, regional groups forming to say, we got to figure out how to make the perception of alt-right power lessened. And we need to amplify the, the voices of those who, are, who do not understand or perceive the world to be that. And so that's been a lot of what ECM has been involved with. We just had a queer cabaret on Sunday that was outdoors that people could participate in and and you utilized that opportunity to think and to share with community flourishing and celebration. So in in moments of fear, we have we have t- decisions that we can make, and certainly those are I'm not trying to speak to everyone's context, but it's been encouraging to see communities form and opportunities bubble up that says we are present, we are visible, we matter, and we have we have life to celebrate too. And so I think that those types of those types of moments are powerful in and of themselves because they demonstrate an, an alternative narrative, an alternative vision of flourishing. And so that's something that again I I think has to happen and is happening on a very real scale. Hey there. I wanted to take a moment to give a big thanks to some of the folks that have been supporting the show recently. Rose for her one-time donation, as well as Rachel, family friend. If anybody wants to make a single donation, uh, you can do so at Venmo at Daniel Shkolnik. And I also want to give a big thanks to Erling Hope for becoming a patron on Patreon. For the past few years, Erling has been working on a project called Crazy Making. It's a multi-year project about what we believe and also how we believe it. At the core of the project, he asks two questions of people. What's the craziest thing you believe and what's the riskiest thing you believe? Some of my favorite responses that he's gotten so far include the act of questioning is a spiritual act, souls travel in packs, and my new favorite conspiracy theory, 9-11 was caused by the invention of the alphabet 2,900 years ago. Think about it. I'll include a link in the show notes to this episode uh, where you can learn more about Erling and his project and where you can contribute your own crazy or risky belief. Thank you for supporting the show, Erling. Find out more at erlinghope.com 
slash crazymaking. And now, back to the episode. So right now in, in our country, we have political worldviews that are essentially almost non-overlapping. And it's interesting to think about this because it's in some ways very similar to two different religious worldviews, two different metaphysical worldviews that are completely incompatible with one another. When you can't agree on the baseline of reality, it's very easy, I think, to, to, to come to blows. And oftentimes through history, um, it's, it's been through physical warfare, through kinetic warfare. With time, we've transitioned into using diplomacy instead of warfare as a, as a way to, to resolve conflicts. I've heard uh, this um, political historian, David Moss, talk about how in the history of democracy, conflict is not necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, he says that in the most divisive periods of American political history, there has been really interesting innovation that has come out of that because of that conflict. I'll, I'll read a quote from the, the, his book, Democracy, a Case Study. He says that what struck me in working on these case studies is that in nearly every moment of American history, people thought democracy was about to break. In one instance, the Civil War, they were right. But most of the time, they were wrong in part because they acted, became more engaged, and worked for reforms. Their hypochondria, if I can call it that, he says, their repeated fear that democracy was sick was ultimately good for the political system because it promoted action and engagement. And so maybe, maybe, fingers crossed, knock on wood, that this current you know, era that we're in is not going to lead to a, a giant split and, and a second, God forbid, civil war, but is actually something that is a healthy part of our democracy that is making us much more engaged individually and collectively in the direction that our country is going in. I think it's that's kind of, when I hear those types of things and experiences, I value them for the kind of attempt or the hope of having an objective look at what's happening. As someone who's in ministry and works kind of on the ground, these moments of strain are very stressful. They're yeah. not, they're, they're very real and lived. So for example, we've had homelessness rates increase, mm. food insecurity increases, people are having to make very difficult decisions about, can I afford medicine or do I have to? Or do I, how can I, can I feed myself? And not that those things weren't happening previously because we do have these discrepancies already in the United States of inequity, but I feel like they've been heightened, at least in my own experience. And mm -hmm. so I think naming the hopefulness that I hear in that quote and also hoping that be, being engagement and looking towards engagement and talking about engagement is being important. I also think it's important to name that those moments are, are hard and, and, and often that are weathered differently depending on so many different factors. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind too, that the, the, the lived experience that's happening, while it may end up not ending in a civil war, still doesn't make it something that is an, an easy transition or something that is to be celebrated in that sense. I don't want people to be hungry. I don't want people 
to have to make decisions about medical care that shouldn't exist and um, needs to not be a part of the process as best as it can. And so that's something that I'm I'm always mindful of just working on the ground and seeing the kinds of things that um, I see in my role. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it, it is very hard. And it's very hard right now because and for, for so many reasons, even, even among families, people are, have been and are being divided by, you know, whole worldviews that, that just seem to be so incompatible. And this has obviously so much to do with the kind of information ecology that we currently live in, where people are, they're seeing different information. They're, there's a, either a, a trust or distrust of, of totally different kinds of news sources, information sources, and yeah, I see my 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 roommate has has a tough time talking with his father. My my mother and sister I know have have come to very tense uh, places, and you know it is very difficult to have these conversations and maintain maintain your your calm, maintain sight of your your the commonality that you have. Do you have do you have any any ideas or suggestions for those people who are who want to engage how to do that? That's a uh, a good question and one with much nuance. But I can think about it maybe from different angles. I think that some people need to remain calm. I, for example, as a, a white woman with um, some modicum of privilege, my role I feel like in this moment is to, as I said, listen and walk alongside people and support folks. I think other people, it's okay to be angry. I think that there's there's a place for anger. Certainly in, a, in the Christian context, there is lots of righteous anger, and often that is framed in a negative way, like, oh, you're going to hell or, oh, you've sinned. But I also think that people can be angry and be angry about the situation at hand because of their, the injustices that are happening. And so for those who are in a space of anger, I acknowledge that and even think from my own context that that can be okay. I think that if you're talking about trying to engage like with parents or family, certainly that's a, a different that's a different type of conversation than if you're in a protest and leading a protest or, or involved in those types of organizing activities. But in terms of like, well, so we'll talk about if you're in a family setting and you're at dinner and things are hard. It's okay, I, I would say, and to recognize and understand your own limits that in some ways it's really difficult, not only because you feel you feel angry or invested because this is someone you care about or that you look up to. I mean, you have a relationship. And so that it makes sense to acknowledge that that's difficult. I think when people are in a space where they feel like they're able to engage, if that if it comes to that spot, then remembering, reminding yourself that trying to come from a place of curiosity, is important, not necessarily because the other person will reciprocate that, but because it allows you to kind of be in a, a mind frame of engaging with someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I don't think that's everyone. Everyone doesn't need to be there. If you're, if you have, if you are a, a gay son and your father is telling you, or mother is telling you, or parent is telling you that you are awful, and if that's not a healthy place for you, don't do that. Like, don't, because that's, mm. I get that. But if you're really invested in, in conversation, then coming from a place of, I'm curious about where you're coming from, maintaining, I, I actually off, often when I'm in a space where I feel like I'm going to be stressed, I will meditate before I go do something like that. If I know that's, that I'm going to good. be in that spot. Yeah, yeah, because it allows you to kind of be like, okay, I'm in my space. 
this other person is in their space. I'm going to just be living into my space. Obviously, that's a lot of prep work, but no. And but then, prep, prep work, I think, is important. Absolutely. I, I mean, meditating. I for 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 me personally, I, I imagine the conversation and I imagine it going well beforehand. Oh, that's nice. That's such a good idea. I love that. You should write these things down. <laughs> I think that acknowledging during a conversation, I try and say things like, "I I value you." I because I'm assuming that if you're engaging in this conversation, that you value that person. I, I want you to know that I care about you, like saying those things mm-hmm. out loud. And yeah, I feel like that can, that's be, a, that can be huge. I mean, it just it just reminds the, them that, OK, we, right. we do have a bond that we are trying to maintain. Right. And yeah. Right. So I think that those some of those ways of creating reciprocity are helpful. And then if you're at a place where you are like, what, I've done what I can and this this is the end of what I can do, then you just leave. And if you're really continuing to engage, then remaining in that mindset is helpful. And sometimes I think it's good to to think of successes, but it's Mm -hmm. also good not to idealize. Like you're probably at the end of your conversation if someone thinks that Donald Trump is the like descendant of the Lord, like it's, and you're not in that same spot, like you're going to have a different outcome. Like your outcome probably isn't going to be that the person acknowledges that you have been correct for all of time, but just says, okay, or you're, you're really, conversations are planting seeds. Conversations yeah. are planting seeds more than convincing people that they have, that they are in a different place than you are. I like that framework a lot. It reminds me of, so Anthony Magnabosco is somebody that I know who, who he, he's a, an agnostic, an atheist, and he does uh, street epistemology. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating technique to basically get people to consider not to challenge their beliefs directly, but to get them to consider why, how they came to their beliefs. So look at the epistemology, their way of knowing, and, mm-hmm. and ask them to consider, is that way of knowing foolproof? Are you sure about how you got to where you got? Do you know who else would love that? Socrates. Socrates would love that. Socrates would eat that up. Yeah, I believe he, yeah, that, that, was, that was part of his diet, I think. That was the Absolute Socratic. question. Yeah, yeah, the Socratic diet. Anthony, Anthony you know, uh, one of his tips is he does these videos online where he's talking about people, to people about deeply held beliefs of theirs. And when he sees somebody pausing to think, he lets them pause. He lets them think. Rather than continuing to talk, because that's that's when you that's when real change is happening. When they that's are right. yeah, when they are when they are not responding immediately, gears are turning. And and yeah, there's many of his conversations. They don't they don't end with like a complete reversal, no. but but like maybe weeks or even months or sometimes years later, somebody will get in touch with him. It's like I really you've changed my mind. Like it wasn't then, but like it planted that seed. And over time, I really started thinking more deeply about this stuff. And I've, I've come around to a different form of looking at things. Absolutely. And that's the fostering curiosity. You're really, I mean, in my opinion, again, this is maybe coming from my ministry background, but I don't see myself as being like the converter of humanity. I don't care. I don't even care about that. If there is any type of like converting, which I hate that word, that happens, it's this sense of like being comfortable thinking about things. Like I just, I just think being open to like asking and thinking seems to be a really great place to be because it is not someone's role 
in my opinion, again, to think that we can autocratic each other into thinking or being the same way. We should really be seeing each other as like companions in this mm-hmm. in this journey for many reasons. Like we all come from different contexts and this is important and this frames how we are. So I, I love that. And I hope, I think that again, having setting that realistic expectation and not seeing it as a failure, I feel like because people are so used to like, I've checked the box of like making someone think like me, that really isn't a healthy way to engage with people. Sure. You're, you're really just you're really just perpetuating some of the things that maybe you don't want someone else to do to you. And so imagining yourself as being someone who is curating imagination and curiosity and capacity, that feels like a better spot, not only for your own, like, okay, this is my outcome, but also like being, being recognizing and acknowledging that other person has a brain and is a human and is capable of hopefully processing and thinking about themselves and that you get to be a part of that. What a joy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to go back to something something you mentioned before about the role of anger right now, but also in general. There, There is... I, I totally agree with you in the sense that there is plenty to be angry about right now for various reasons. Sometimes it feels like anger is, is a natural expression of when people think that some, something is wrong, something they're deeply passionate about something in the world not being not being fair, not being just, not being equitable, and anger is an expression of that. But does anger have a place in in changing politics and changing the world, in the sense of when anger becomes a uh, aggressive force, when anger becomes violence, is sure. that still a legitimate expression or or, or does that divide ultimately more than it mends? I think that's kind of maybe the question, one of the questions. For me, I don't know who said this, so if someone knows, they should quote. But I, someone once described to me the difference between hot anger and cold anger. Mm. And that has been helpful for me. And I wish I could think of who it was. I don't know if I read it or someone said it, but it's, I think it's pretty helpful. Hot anger is that like explosion mm-hmm. where you're like the, 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 all the things that come with yelling or screaming or feeling like really maybe even violent in that sense, like you're just in that hot anger spot. And I, and I want to say that like, I, one of the things I think that Christianity has done poorly is separating the body from the experience. Like there's this theology, especially from Aristotle of like suppressing the human, like there's all this suppression. We have to suppress our feelings. And so I think one of the things that is important to challenge, at least again, from my perspective, is this sense of like, it's okay, you're going to have feelings, like people have feelings, have feelings. And that includes anger, like feel that anger. Mm -hmm. But there's a difference between hot anger and acting out of hot anger and acting out of cold anger, or the sense of like, anger can be animating, anger Mm -hmm. is animating. And when you, I'm angry about a lot of things. I'm, I'm angry about some of the histories of my tradition. And some of that has propelled me into thinking about leadership because I don't agree with those things. But I don't, I don't feel like from my perspective, I'm running around saying that I'm angry at the crusades or something, which I am angry about, or I do feel upset about, or. But so it's, so cold, cold anger, what is it? Some examples? Yeah. So Cold anger is just what I would think of as this, like, of the animation of, like, I have ruminated on this. Mm -hmm. This is a part of my understanding of where I'm at. This is motivating for me. Like, I I see this as a social problem or a social concern, and Mm -hmm. I want to actively participate 
in this conversation and contribute to it in some capacity, knowing that that can mean a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like for me, when I think about what does it mean to act out of anger? I, I like that framework of cold anger because I can make decisions. Like I can make, I can acknowledge someone else's humanity, even if they disagree with me. Mm. I'm really not able to do that in my hot anger spot. Right. Um, so that's, that, again, that's sort of how I frame it. That's a, that's a really good framework. I, I think it's it, right in the, co- in the context of a conversation, like, let's say a family conversation with, with someone that, with very different views. I was talking with my sister about having conversations like this with with our mother, and when the wave of the conversation, when it when it starts to when it starts to crest, when it starts to turn, and that hot anger starts, you've you essentially can feel lost. It, you know what I mean? Yeah, you you feel it, and you've lost the conversation, especially if. If one person triggers another person, and like both people are, are entering into that hot anger state, where it, it feels like their identity and their their core beliefs are being challenged, and absolutely, it it really is hard to bring it back from that. It's just a kind of exponential emotional curve. But cold anger, from my understanding of yeah, it's it's something that you're you're talking from a place of right of of you've thought about it it's something that you've internalized you 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 are are committed it's like a resolve I like that, that and and it can come through in your words and in your conversation but it, it's not it's not like a blinding uncontrolled rage sure yeah. i think that you you paraphrased it and added helpfully how i i think of oh, or how i interpret that as well yeah I, I wanna I wanna say that maybe it was on Hidden Brain that the psychology podcast. I feel like I've heard of them talking about anger, but it could be a completely different different place. Sure, we 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 actually hosted a theology of anger conference at ECM two years ago and had a whole conversation around what does anger mean in the context of Christianity. What is anger like? Is a righteous anger? What is this? So we were discussing that, and I cannot think of what it was what mm. who said that or what it was from but i i was like i'm taking that with me from this <laughs> so. excellent excellent i think these these are really useful concepts i i would i would it, it because we're so close to the election like whatever conversations I, could have happened whatever change could have happened it's probably it's probably too late to 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 really be having these conversations at the, at the final hour but i think i think at this point it it comes down to the electoral system that that we've established mm-hmm. and which is really if you think about it it is it is a infrastructure to have these kinds of conversations on a nationwide scale i think voting is i i believe an act of faith it's an act of faith that what we what we've been involved in this 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 enterprise for the last 300 years is really is 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 working or is can work can work better and better than it has worked in the past i think that's what is kind of at the heart of the the american constitutional system amendments and and distribution of power checks and balances it's the ambition to over time slowly but surely correct and adjust and and i i have great faith and hope that that will continue hope is so important yeah hope hope backed up with action that's right yeah
Well, I hope everybody goes goes and uses their voice, uses their vote, and yeah. Do it. It is it is an act of act of faith, and uh, yeah, Christian, thank you so much for for coming on the show. Thank um, you for having me. Absolutely. And oh, one one more thing is there is there a word that you want to add to the Athosaurus? It is a thesaurus for for atheists, for agnostics, for those who do not believe and yet who want to express very deep and, and potent emotion, human emotions without using words like soul or transcendent or divine. I, I think there's a word, I think it is pneuma. I may be saying it wrong. And it is, I like the word, it, it, it's kind of a translation for spirit, but I, I don't think that it comes with the baggage oh, that oh, you're oh, describing. Oh. Is that P-N-E-U-M? Yes, M-A. Uh, P, wait, so spell it? P-N-E-U-M-A. Okay. Pneuma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pneuma. And that's, that's from um, the same root that pneumatic yes. is? Yeah, of lungs, it, of breath. Yes, yes, it means it's used in, in John. People don't know this, and that's why it's kind of cool. Or maybe they do. Maybe everyone knows this, and I'm the only one that no, thinks no, this no, is no. novel. I, I, but it means to, like, breathe spirit or, or breath onto something. And so it's I an like... It's Greek word, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So pneuma. I think that pneuma. I think that's a. It's also kind of a sciencey word. Yeah, yeah. It's used. It's bandied about among in, 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 in scientific labs. It is. It does mean spirit. So that I don't know if that is helpful or not. But that would be the word that. That's the word that came to my mind when you said that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Christian. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you for listening to Reenchantment. Of all the things that Christian and I have disagreed about over the years, the biggest thing has not been God or religion. The biggest thing has been the Enneagram. After years of debate back and forth, Christian and I finally came together after this conversation to talk about the Enneagram, and we recorded the whole thing. We strive as best we can with as little snark as possible to model a conversation where two people come together and maintain mutual respect while debating a very divisive and emotionally volatile topic. The bonus conversation is only available on Patreon to subscribers of the show. Become a patron by subscribing at patreon.com slash reenchantment and get access to our full conversation about the Enneagram as well as other bonus episodes, videos, and special content. Once again, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Reenchantment.